0: Welcome to a Christian and a Buddhist walk into a bar. My name is Jamal and I'm a Buddhist.
1: My name's Jacob.
0: I am a Christian.
2: And my name's Noel. I am also a Christian and a guest for this evening. And I'm very glad to be here.
0: Yeah, we, we have our first guest in the studio with us, Jacob. This is this is a world first on our <laughs> on, well, yeah, handful Premier. of episode podcast. <laughs> yes.
1: Um, so would you like to introduce Noel for us, Jacob? Absolutely. So Noel is a Lutheran pastor, so we're ganging up on you once again, Jamal. It's two on one. Um, And theologian and just wonderful, wise, extraordinary gentleman.
0: Shall I go on with superlatives and adjectives? Uh, No, I'll pay you later. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. Well, yeah, um, thanks for joining us, Noel. It's good to have you here. Thanks, Jamal.
2: Lovely to be here.
0: Yeah. Um, so, I, we were talking just a little bit before and we think the um, the conceit of this podcast might be a little bit different to what we usually do with guests where we normally sit you down and quiz you all about everything you know. But, but you've decided you want to turn the tables on us and, and ask us some questions.
2: I would love to turn the tables on you too because this is a fascinating process as far as I'm concerned.
0: Well, amazing. Uh, take, us, take us away, Noel. Where do you want to start? Um, <laughs> firstly, I would love to hear... The
2: two most important things you've gained personally from this dialogue, I'm not talking about concepts or so forth, but what are the two most important things you've each taken away personally from the time? How long
1: have you been doing this, Jacob? This will, uh, I don't know what episode number this will be when it comes to air, but something like 35, 40 yeah, l- episodes l- l- Less
0: than 50, more than 30. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. We've um, had
1: Christmas and Easter specials, so you know you've made it when you've had a Christmas special, right?
2: It's, uh, may I just uh, uh, perhaps expand on that for one second? I, I think that we are in a world which is so increasingly polarised, we're losing the ability to talk across issues. We only talk at one another. And as soon as we label one another, we've set up the conversation in an adversarial way, which was always going to be a lose somewhere. Um, The uh, Hungarian psychiatrist, uh, Thomas Schatz, talked about labelling. And at one point he used the image of labels Um, as a gun that you might fight over in a Western, you know, and he who gets the gun first wins the battle. And increasingly our personal and public debate is marked by a very aggressive labelling which cancels the other person's opinions beforehand. So I'm interested in this discussion. I think it's a way forward for us on all sorts of issues. And hence my first question, what are the two personal things that you have most valued about the weeks that you've been talking together?
1: I think one of mine is just kind of, well, a couple of things. I've, I value the fact that our conversations, that, that we allow ourselves to be vulnerable and, dare I say, it, humble. Can we, are we humble. Are we humble? We? We, we, we aspire to humility. <laughs> <laughs> but particularly about, um, I, I guess, like you, you've shared sometimes, Jamal, about kind of not being a particularly good Buddhist sometimes, or, or that the aspects of your life where your your practice strays from kind of a, what a pure teaching might expect, and this kind of thing. Um, and I, I like, I value that we can. Be real as people, and maybe I'm just riffing off what Noel has said here about the the labeling and so on. But to be able to talk about where we not necessarily disagree with aspects of our faith traditions, although there is that, but just where we kind of don't don't live up to them or don't embody them fully, and a kind of okay but not okay with that, and it, it's interesting to um. To explore that with somebody who's not a Christian, because, like, as you know, it's kind of baked in, in a sense, to the Christian tradition and the idea of sin and everything else, but it wasn't to my awareness in, in kind of the Buddhist sense. So that's, uh, and the other thing that uh, this I mean, this is more me valuing you as a person rather than, oh, being, well, thanks. I've learned to value you as a person. There we go. <laughs> you you, you um, got there in the end. <laughs> yeah. But just the, the way in which, certainly in your Buddhism, love kind of plays itself out and the love of others and the love of neighbor. And I've got uh, like still some kind of intellectual critiques around how is that not selfish and so on. But just the fact that it's there and the fact that it exists and that you embody that um, better than many Christians I know. Mm. Like it's just, I, I like that. So does that count as things I've learned,
2: um, No, That's, that's- those things as you learn. As far as I'm concerned, <laughs> um, what about you, Jamal? If I may ask the same.
0: Well, yeah. So I think so. Jacob mentioned uh, a few times. I've shared. You know, I I'm probably a. Oh um, uh, yeah. I don't know. I, I would consider myself a. Uh, I guess intellectually devout Buddhist. The the practice kind of comes and goes. And 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 I think honestly, from a personal perspective, one of the things I've really gained from these conversations is. I think it's built in a sense of engagement with my own practice and my own Buddhism, and a routine around that. Where you know, a couple of times a month, we we get up and we have to talk about things, and I've got to actually like think through what I'm, what I feel and what I know, and and you know, and kind of try and represent Buddhism in the room sometimes, which <laughs> do to varying degrees of success. Um, but you know, it's to me, I think it's it's a really intriguing and interesting and quite. Thought-provoking way that I that I think it makes me a better Buddhist. I Mm. I I think it it makes me reflect on uh, the Buddhist teachings and the Buddhist practice, and it makes me able to communicate those in ways that I haven't always kind of inherently thought of how to do. Uh, But then also to be able to listen uh, from Jacob and listen from the people we have here to talk about, okay, like what is another perspective on this? You know, yeah, I think often we will speak in silos. You know, I'll speak. About Buddhism with other Buddhists, or at least with atheists that are quasi Buddhist. Yeah. Um, and, you know, um, of, of whom there are many. Oh, yes. yes. And so I, I I said to Jacob before, <laughs> I claim the 30% no religion on the census are actually Absolutely. all, all Buddhist. So just, yep. I'm taking them. Um, but, you know, like, I think speaking about Buddhism with people that disagree on the premise, right? That disagree on the fundamental core premises of it, I think is a really enlightening. Um, process and and something that I think I learn a lot from from that yeah yeah
2: Uh, and may I push that a little bit further and just ask what you've come to appreciate not just about the conversation but about one another in this process Hmm. because we're part of a common humanity whatever our philosophical um, religious political views Um, so what have you come to appreciate about one another during these conversations
0: I think, for me, I definitely, I think, appreciate Jacob's sense of consideration and openness to have the conversation. I think it's something, you know, um, know, particularly in Australia, in a country where, you know, a lot of people uh, could be culturally Christian but don't, you know, Mm. talk about Christianity Mm. as a religion, um, there's a kind of expectation or a trope around those that do identify religiously as christian as being conservative as Mm. being um you know very fixated on the the one way of viewing things because because you don't have to anymore right Mm. you know 20 30 years ago people say oh i'm christian it's kind of a broader term and i don't Mm. think it Mm. it it holds as much um kind of social implications whereas nowadays i think it does i think it's it's almost kind of uh, quite a statement to come out and say, "Hey, you know what? I'm actually a Christian." Um, and so, one thing I really appreciate appreciate about Jacob is I think you, yeah, to, to put it this way, you you look like all of the tropes, and then you're very much <laughs> not all the tropes, you know. So, like you know, like you know cis white male, cis, Germanic background, yeah, like, like, like exactly right. Like you have all of the trappings of what everyone would expect, kind of a a a, a the the trope of a white Christian to be. Uh, and then we get into a podcast room, or we have conversations at a bar, and <laughs> and you know you there's so much more depth to it. There's so much more consideration of it. And you know, I mean, I, I yeah, you know, there's a huge amount of times in our in our kind of live event that we do of this where you know Jacobs brought along a Christian friend of his. I've been having a discussion, and then Jacobs kind of stepped in to defend Buddhism in that discussion, or like yep, or, or, you know, I mean, or or kind of like had some you know some some kind of almost anti-christian point to make in there and yeah, i i appreciate that that flexibility of thinking right it's i i think it you know i i think given the way we met i kind of expected it of you but it's it's been a really pleasant kind of reminder that the that that's really part of it and you're in i guess in quite you know shall I say, theologically developed Christianity, I think that's kind of inherent in there. Is that open-mindedness, which I really Mm. appreciate? That's Mm. helpful. Um, There's a couple
2: of things that you've raised there that I was hoping we would get to at some point tonight, but I still want to stick, if you don't mind, Jacob, to the personal response because the way to have a conversation is always a sympathetic appreciation of the other person as a person and to have a very sympathetic hermeneutic around their motive. You know, we we too quickly judge motive now in our polarized conversations. But I, please go yeah. ahead.
1: No, I, I, the the thing that I was going to do, I kind of mentioned like just your love of people and stuff before. So we've we've done that. We've parked that. But something I really appreciate about you, Jamal, and it infuriates me at the same time. So I'm not sure how sympathetic this is. Noel, is your relentless relativism (laughs) um it it really kind of stretches me as someone who holds a universalist position on the nature of reality that you know we um we receive things as subjective but actually there is objectiveness out behind them and, and you don't hold that at all even though sometimes i either suspect that you do a little or maybe I'm just projecting onto you or whatever but um yeah I've I've kind of flattered a little bit that you talked about I think was it flexibility of mind or something Mm, like that the language Mm. that you use because I I see myself as so unflexible of mind compared to you with that that relativism right like and and I'm not saying that I want to be that flexible of mind. Like you I, I would have a, you would have a breakdown. <laughs> You'd have a huge breakdown. I think I probably would. I definitely. There'd be a crisis of faith yeah. involved in that. Yeah. Um, and but I, I really appreciate how I, I don't know if it's connected with that or not. Um, but certainly the the process of recording the podcast has challenged and stretched me in a bunch of ways in the way that I understand myself and the world and my faith in relation to those things uh, in a way that I found really helpful, which, is like, like you said before, is like the kind of getting out of the silo a mm, bit. Um, mm, yeah. Mm.
2: No, I really appreciate the way that you've gone about these discussions and the openness and vulnerability, I think, as you used the word, Jacob, um, it cuts through so much of the bravado, the defensiveness, uh, the doctrinaire, positions that we sometimes hold um and jamal you have referred earlier to i i think the phrase was the um intellectual uh, or theoretical buddhism yes go throw ahead. something out go sorry ahead, no please. You
1: said cutting through the bravado and the yeah one of the things that and, and maybe it's a relativistic thing is that this is also this podcast is a um kind of safe or or safe enough environment for me I find to to actually like kind of be okay with planting a flag about, you know, some truth that I've come to learn or understand or know about God because I know that you, Jamal, kind of respect that that's true for me Mm. even if you don't think it, even if I think it's universally true and you don't think it's universally true, like I'm not going to get judged Mm. for that. Um, Mm. I might, you know, be called colonialist uh, at some point <laughs> but um yeah no it, it's i really appreciate that yeah
0: well we certainly aim to aim to do that and you know yeah i i i think i just i i don't have a sense that just because i understand something to be true means that it's true in all places um yeah yeah so no you were talking about intellectual buddhism yes.
2: Yes. Sorry, Noel. yeah sorry no yeah uh, no no i think there was um was that the phrase you used that you sometimes had a better grasp of uh the intellectual mm. Buddhist, um, the intellectual principles of Buddhism, rather than the actual practice. And what I was reflecting on as we were driving in the car here was, um, in Christian theology, there's this, there's the high flying theologians who uh, investigate their manuscripts and formulate their doctrine. In Islam, there will be the same. In uh, Orthodox Judaism, there is the same, but there is a difference always across these things between that and what we might call the um, cultural practice that's that exists under that label Judaism Islam Buddhism Christianity and I'm just wondering in your conversations what you've explored of the difference between that high level of theoretical theological reflection and the cultural practice which you encounter day by day Mm. what what is what are those levels of difference that you've Mm. noticed for your own
0: um,
2: spiritual traditions as well as one another's well
0: and i think maybe i'll add a third layer in buddhism that i'm i'm not sure if it maybe it exists in christianity but you can chime in here but so i think Absolutely, what you've described is correct. You've got your, your cultural practice and your kind of your theoretical practice, but I think that in Buddhism, at least, there's this third layer, which is the the meditative practice yes. and, and the practice of what we refer to as the Dharma. Mm-hmm. But the um, the kind of the path and, and mm-hmm. the 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 walking through that are uh, to to not only understand what the Buddha taught, but practice the steps mm. that the Buddha taught, um, and they can often be quite different. Um, so. Yeah, you know, if you, if you think about that triangle, um, I, I I think it's kind of ironic um, for me at least to kind of claim a little bit of intellectual Buddhism because uh, I'm the, the tradition of Buddhism that I follow is the Thai Forest tradition, mm-hmm. which is essentially a rejection of intellectual okay. mm-hmm. Buddhism mm-hmm. and a rejection <laughs> of even cultural Buddhism and a focus kind of really purely on the meditative practice. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and yeah, you know, there are lots of um, monastics within that tradition that still you know translate suttas and and spend a lot of time on specific words and all that kind of stuff. Um, But, yeah, certainly, certainly at least in myself, I probably exist uh, probably more on the side of that triangle, of the intersection between meditative practice and, um, you know, kind of theoretical intellectual understanding. Uh, Personally, not so much in the cultural sphere. Um, I think
1: that's actually probably something that we've got in common, hmm. Jamal, because I like I don't know that you could formally break Christianity down into quite the same. Well, you probably could the same three triangles because you've got the the intellectual theological um, kind of studying manuscripts, writing systematics, all of that side of things, and you've got the you know Christmas and Easter kind of cultural tick that box on the census form Christianity, and and somewhere in a in a Venn diagram coexisting with those two is the kind of. I mean, it's it's commonly put of like trying to follow the path of Jesus or this kind of, um, or you know, discipleship, like living out faith, which some of the intellectual stream kind of don't get to because they're so busy over-intellectualizing everything. Um, and a lot of the cultural stream kind of doesn't quite get to because it's, it's not really being reflective on practice, but that's somewhere in the... And, and I would certainly like to think that, my Christian walk is kind of somewhere
0: in that middle strand as well. Mm, for sure. Yeah. But mm. to go to your question, Noel, I think a, a distinction that we often make in this podcast, and I think one that we we often circle around is um, I guess the – the sociological role of religion Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. the the ways in which religion and society intersect uh, which you know to me lives in that cultural sphere of that you know religion and culture religion and politics and all of these various things and you know we we often circle back to this idea of you know western culture and even kind of modern humanist culture being uh, really rooted in christianity particularly Mm. and and in you know, a lot of the the expectations we have of the world and a lot of the ways our Mm. society is set up are really fundamentally Christian. And we we speak a lot about the ways that the theological bases of that Mm. underpin some of the assumptions and expectations we have in society today Mm. and some of the ways in which we exist uh, in at least Western society today. So, Mm. yeah, I think we do... I I think we often kind of try and unpack that because I think it can be Mm. really common to uh, either completely ignore it and not, not realise it's there, uh, in the case of, I think, a lot of um, quite kind of modern um, you know, modern secular society. Mm. I think mm. I think there's a lack of recognition of the role religion's played in that, mm. um, or to oversimplify it and just kind of make it all just one, you know, Christianity means this, which means behaving in this way mm. or being in society mm. in this way and actually trying to tease out where the links are and, and where where the breaks are and where one Mm. starts and the other begins. And Mm. where the Mm.
1: culture kind of, like if we're talking about Western culture, being soaked in Christianity, but at the same time having um, aspects of that culture that are, I would say are really not Christian, Mm. even if they kind of come from that backdrop. Um, Mm. And and that's like one of the things with the structural conversation of, Um, I think you've mentioned a couple of times, Jamal, of like the the social purpose which religion plays or can be seen to play. And and that's just helped me to see how, at least for for my money, Christianity doesn't fit that. Like there's a distortion of Christianity that does do all of that stuff.
2: Mm, But mm, yeah. mm. Mm. I've often said I, I used to teach in a university college in the UK for a long time and I often said to my students that the current postmodern western world is actually living on the fumes of a Christianity which has formed it but it's lost touch with the uh, living dynamic from which that th- uh, those beliefs and structures and practices came so we value the things that the Christians valued back in the early days but the um, sort of moral power for that is now sought within ourselves rather than externally mm. because the whole mark of Christianity was an externality, you know, the gift of Christ which has come to us. But uh, that's a, taking us down the structural route. But you're going to say something, Jamal. Well,
0: well no, so I think that's that, that observation you make is precisely right. And, and I think it's probably what I understand to be humanism. Right, yes. so mm-hmm. uh, and you know, different branches of humanism, socialist humanism, liberal humanism, whatever you want to call it, um, you know, probably starting in maybe the seventeen hundreds, but growing mm. particularly in the in the twentieth century, um, and you know, um, there's there's a lot of talk uh, these days about you know humanism. Uh, you know, yes, it underpins our society, but it is a religion, right? Mm, and it, it mm-hmm. it's a, you know it, it just centers moral authority not in an external force, but in uh, human feelings, right? Mm-hmm. It, it says, mm-hmm. well, you know, it, it, it's that whole kind of fundamental thing of well, what is right or wrong? It's right because it makes me feel good and it's wrong Mm. because it makes me feel bad. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that is the ultimate arbiter of everything. I mean, democracy is a humanist creed. It's, you know, Mm. I feel like this person versus this person, therefore that person should have the authority to run the state. Mm. You know, it's... Yeah. You know, you know, whereas previously you'd say, "Well, no, God made this person the king mm. or the, the pope mm. or whatever else, and they should run the state." Mm. Um, mm. So yeah, it's. I think what you're saying is absolutely correct. I. And it's, I, I, it's I, interesting that kind of, at, at least in my
1: experience on this podcast, the Buddhist critique of and the Christian critique of that system are quite similar. Mm.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, actually, this brings me to this one thing I heard on a on a different podcast uh, last week, which I've been dying to bring in because it's just like it. it Blows my mind with this humanism thing as well. So, um this is a tangent, by the way. No, you you'll get used to this. We do a lot of these. <laughs> I'm used to tangents, yeah. many of them. Um so so you know, humanism uh humanism's one one of the big things that spurn humanism and kind of help give rise to it in in the West at least is evolution, right? Like hmm. evolutionary teaching, uh Darwinism, all that kind of thing. Found out the other day, Darwin, at least originally, never said the term survival of the fittest. Oh. So, survival of the fittest was introduced in the fifth edition uh, after Herbert Spencer, who was a social social evolutionist and social Darwinist, took Darwin's term, applied it to uh, the kind of very problematic social evolutionary theory about you know, human beings being Absolutely. evolved within cultures, and then Darwin kind of to keep up with his contemporaries, added it in. His original term was survival of the fit which I think has a hugely different connotation. right? Like, If you think about, like, we've kind of built our world around this concept of survival of the fittest and competition and all these kinds of things. Survival of the fit means something entirely different, and there's a real sense of sufficiency rather than competitiveness that goes in with that that Mm. I think is fascinating, and I just find it... And you can have many types of fit, right? You don't have to have the fittest. Yeah, Yeah. And, 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 and multiple... You know, organisms that are fit can all exist in the same place. They don't have to compete with each other. And, you know, I find it really interesting that that fittest kind of specificity only arises later from Spencer. And Spencer is like absolutely... Spencer argued that the poor were a drain on society because they, you know, hadn't evolved enough to be rich. Like we're talking that kind of guy here. So like, and you know, yes. It's always the disciples, isn't it? This is what we learn
1: from Life of Brian, right? It's always the the disciples. Well,
0: yeah. And so like Darwin included it, but like there's a sense that he included it kind of after the fact, after having received some criticism and trying to rework his work to be more palatable. Right. So like, it's just a fascinating kind of thing. And yeah, I don't know. I, I'm really keen on this idea of survival of the fit. You know, okay, what does our world look like if we think like that instead of survival of the fittest? Mm. Yeah. Mm. Uh,
2: I, I agree with you. And one of the worked examples of the consequence of the survival of the fittest is uh, Hitler's response to the destruction of Germany. Hmm. Um, As he was in his bunker and everything was going to pieces and all of his nation and populace was being destroyed, his comment essentially was they don't deserve to exist. They've Hmm. not been strong enough. Hmm. They need to be the fittest. They were not the fittest. And so their destruction is necessary so that another group of even fitter and... Those people who come next may be the fittest. It's a very cruel, um, unforgiving view of the world. Yeah, I
0: appreciate the comment very much, Jamal. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. well, and and even to, to use that to use that point, it's like you know the entire Third Reich was built off this kind of concept of trying to force you know a, a presumption of social evolution and cultural evolution, mm. and trying to essentially force humanity to evolve as they saw it. Right, and yeah, yep. it's just. Yep. It's this, you know it, That's obviously, you know, evolutionism taken to the extreme. And I don't think we do that in the same way, you know, in a kind of more liberal humanism uh, world that we live in. But you know, yeah, it's just a fascinating distinction, right? Mm, and it, mm. yeah, it's you know, it's, it's it's just you know, how do we how do we as people, and how does society change if we accept you don't have to be the fittest, you don't mm. have to compete, you don't have to win. At every point, mm, mm. yeah. Um,
2: I, I, I'm interested in something that both of you have alluded to. If we come back, and perhaps yeah, yeah. we'll find another tangent before long. Uh,
1: absolutely not. Um, there's always
2: tangents. Uh, Jamal, right at the beginning, you said something about um, not being as good a Buddhist, or not being as there was. I think I
1: said that. I think I dropped Jamal in, <laughs> in it. Uh, yeah. Um,
2: there, there's this question about how each of us no matter what our worldview philosophically or religiously uh, have to live with a reality that whatever we believe and however we believe we ought to practice we actually don't Mm. and I just wonder how you've explored that in your conversations and what does one do with that dissonance that cognitive Mm. spiritual and indeed emotional dissonance between what we hope and believe one ought to be, and what one actually is—is um, ha- is that something you've explored, and how have you come to it, or what have you resolved, if anything?
1: Well, I've, I'll answer your question by going off on what might be a bit of a tangent. Let's do a tangent, <laughs> <laughs> which is to say, like part of the part of the challenge of conversations like this is that I, I don't know if you find this, Jamal, because you're a relativist. You are like it's, but I, I'll find often enough that i'm kind of fight to, to use a war analogy because our conversations are like warfare, obviously right <laughs> that that i'm fighting a battle that's on terrain not of my choosing or, or trying to kind of build a, a building on sand that's moving beneath me because you, you've asked a question that comes out of particular assumptions that i don't necessarily hold right so we've we've had more than a few conversations around morality um and something I found difficult to to do in the podcast which I've I've tried to do and wanted to do is kind of crowbar this idea of grace in um and kind of God's unconditional acceptance um which sometimes it feels like we that we still land on the question yeah well but uh, there was a conversation we had a, a while ago of like, how is someone a real Christian or not? And it's kind of all well, because God says. And it's like, well, yeah, but what do you do? And how? Like, and the, that kind of disconnect or challenge that came into it, which which connects to like, well, what what do you do when you don't live up to the the practice mm. um, of of the theory? And I, I suspect I know. I have a thought as to how you might answer that question. How do you think First, I'm going to answer that? Well, go, go ahead. <laughs> uh. oh, I, I think um, the the way I've heard you describe it anyway is that you know, you're you not going to get enlightened in this life. Um, and so therefore, not in a nihilistic way, but it's like, well, if, if you're not going to go the, the whole hog and get enlightened, it's like, Live well, get the good – it's not good karma, but it's like the yeah, – it's kind of good karma. It's calmer. kind of good karma. So you can kind of be reincarnated in a way that you're going to be closer to getting enlightenment in the future and, and kind of that's future Jamal's problem rather than current Jamal's problem, whereas kind of my, my response to to that gap is, well, kind of God's got it, yeah, I guess. And they're very different assumptions. Yeah, mm-hmm. and
0: I, I, I think – I, I think it probably comes down to a like, like I think most of our uh, kind of our disagreements come down to is is the question of permanence or not right mm. you know, impermanence versus permanence. I think to, to answer your question, Noel, I, I think probably it's worth defining what I mean when I say I'm not you know, a good Buddhist, so to speak you know I I, 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 you know, I think I probably am a good Buddhist by a lot of metrics but you know, what I mean by that is that I, I certainly don't practice as much as mm. uh, I could. You know, mm. so I I have enough privilege in my life that if I wanted to, I could dedicate a significant, uh, a significantly larger amount of my time to meditation, to practice, to. Uh, or doing... you could be a monk. Absolutely, I could be a monk. Yeah. Like you know, I, some people would be annoyed, but that's about the worst it would get, right? Mm. Like yeah, you know, I I wouldn't. Um, I yeah, there is nothing stopping me from becoming a full monastic. There's nothing, and it, it, even if I accept that I don't want to or you know, that's not the right path for me there's nothing stopping me from meditating an hour a day right like mm. that that would be a fairly easy addition to my life um would have to sacrifice some stuff but you know i could do that uh and yet i don't uh mm. yet you know there are sometimes when i meditate every day there are sometimes when i meditate you know once a week at best mm. um and so I think when I say, you know, that quote unquote good Buddhist thing, it's probably more a reflection of, I guess, not engaging in as much focused practice as uh, I could or as I think, you know, and I I do accept that if I engaged in more focused Buddhist practice and more meditation, I would, um, you know, I'd probably be a happier person. I'd probably uh, be living more in line with the Buddhist teaching. Um, And, you know, yeah, I, I think to the point that Jacob was making, I, I I think I kind of... I settle with that, with this kind of sense of um, infiniteness and also impermanence, mm. you know, so that, that you know, I, I don't need to get it all right, right now. You know, I, I think I'm doing a pretty good job of getting a lot of it right and, you know, doing as much as I can. Um, and so, yeah, you know, I I can go through periods of not meditating all that much and you know what, I think I'll be mm. okay. And I could go through this whole life of not meditating all that much. And I, you know, probably think that, you know, I'll get reborn and there'll be another chance and, you know, I, I can give it a crack then. Um so this sense that this sense that things are not just restricted to right here, right now, I think is is kind of freeing in that sense. Um mm. and also I guess the impermanence of it in the sense even that, you know, I'm, I mean, on a fundamental level, I don't believe that I am an I with which to practice or not practice in any given moment, right? That's getting a little bit philosophical here, but you know, like, I, I, I think there's a sense in which, you know, that me practicing a lot is impermanent that, you know, I'll practice a lot for a month. Uh, I just came back from the monastery on the weekend. I'm probably a little bit more motivated now. I'm probably a little bit more likely to practice now. And then that'll be impermanent. And in a few weeks time, something else will get busy and I'll stop doing it. And then that'll be impermanent and something else will come along and I'll start doing it again. So it's like this sense of this, this kind of constant change that I am comfortable with um, that I think helps kind of helps me be at peace and be okay with kind of Whatever it is, I'm able to do at any given time, mm. um, even if I can recognize I, you know, could potentially be doing more.
2: Mm. Um, Jacob, if I can ask you to
0: reflect on this
2: in the light mm. of Jamal's helpful explanation, at somewhere in all Christian traditions, you've got a ten commandments, mm. and I, I'm gathering in all Buddhist traditions somewhere there are the still ten injunctions and the eightfold path. The f- no matter. F- five precepts. Five precepts, yeah.
0: okay. Or five precepts or eight precepts if you're living in a monastery or 217 rules if you're a monk. 217 if you're a monk.
1: Oh, so we have, what, 300 and something if you're a first-century Pharisee? So yeah. there we go. Yeah. Trump yeah, I'll yeah. see your 200 on and give you 300 yeah, on. Yeah, the, the 600
2: <laughs> and something if you're a first-century Pharisee. But underneath there, there is this some sense of... Um, uh, uh, this, uh, this is what defines the good. Mm-hmm. This is defined this defines the good. Um, and Jamals reflected on the transitoriness, the impermanence, the constant motion, the you know the river is never the same when you step into <laughs> it the second time. Um, the ten Commandments were written in stone. Um, this is a different thing. So how, how do you so whatever is underneath the good for Jamal is expressed mm. one For you, there's something that seems not as inflex not as flexible.
1: Yes and no because I, I was almost going to kind of interject at the end of Jamal talking there to say like that I, I find a lot in what you were saying and, and just the idea of impermanence generally, to agree with. I just think there is something permanent at the bottom of it and this is something we've circled around a bit on the podcast. So I was going to say I agree with lots of things that Jamal said and Noel, you can pass to me on this afterwards. But um, because certainly in terms in terms of our being in the world um, and our, our, yeah, our, our actions, if all of the law and the commandments kind of – boil down to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength and love your neighbour as yourself. There are an infinite number of ways in which that can be done. And I also have a high degree of trust that if God, if, if God's love is flowing through me to other people, that kind of my my task in the world then is to kind of get on with it and try my best but trust that God is, to use the technical theological term, to trust that God is sanctifying that mm. and that God is taking my efforts at loving other people that are going to be messed up and are going to be tinged with my own ego and I can never kind of quite tell where the altruism ends and my own sense of having some achievement in do, having done something begins and all of this but to to trust that kind of god is at work in that and mm-hmm. and so that's not but that but that's because kind of god and god's love is the permanent that sits below the mm-hmm. impermanence and if god has taken all of the sin and brokenness of the world onto himself in Jesus Christ, that means that the sin and brokenness in the world is impermanent. Mm. Um, and so to come back to your statement of the, the Ten Commandments, for instance, um, I was I was reading, <laughs> of all things this afternoon, I was reading um, St. Augustine, who was a 5th, 4th century um, kind of theologian and thinker and has a lot to answer for in the history of Western thought, but also Said a lot of good things. Good things, yeah. And he was talking about virtue in what I was reading, and and (laughs) I was struck by the thought that Augustine probably hadn't met many Buddhists, but but he he talks about the how a virtue like temperance or prudence and these kind of things that he's talking about are are essentially negative. That um, temperance is about kind of not knee jerk responding to external stimuli and kind of assumes that there is evil out there in the world and is just habits and patterns of being that protect you from the evil. And so the virtue kind of on Augustine's take, the the virtue is not good in and of itself. It's good because it points you to the good. Um, And the the Ten Commandments and, and in fact kind of all the the laws and rules you find in Scripture, particularly in the New Testament, but even the, the Ten Commandments, I would say are doing something really similar. Um, and another dead theologian, Helmut Tillicker, um, talks about how the Ten Commandments are essentially negative in character. So you shall have no other gods before God. Um, you shall not commit adultery. You shall honour your father and your mother. Maybe that one's kind of like a little bit positive, but it, he says that they're all giving you things not to do because those things are going to drag you away from God, not because by not doing them, you are going to become holy, but because if you do do those things, your your focus is going to be away from the good mm-hmm. ultimately. So it's a very long answer to a short question, mm-hmm. but... And, and there's a lot that resonates so, for me in yeah, with that, with what Jamal, Jamal just said. Jamal, yeah. Go,
0: yeah. go, go, go. Well, so I, I have some points on that, but I, I, when you spoke, at, spoke about the Ten Commandments, it did remind me of this time a Christian and a Buddhist walked into a bar, um, <laughs> and, and they were, they're in this bar, and they, they see Moses sitting at the bar. Ah, oh, good bloke, good guy. And, and Moses is, is sitting around and you know, Moses is really kind of chirpy and happy. And they're like, hey, Moses, what's up? They're like, you're much happier than normal. Like, you're normally like, you know, a little bit melancholy or, you know, your head in your hands kind of thing. And, and and Moses was like, oh, no, no, no. So this morning I woke up with a throbbing headache. It was just really, really, really bad. But then like, but, but God cured my headache. It was great. And they're like, oh, that's awesome. Like, how did God cure your headache? And Moses was like, oh, he gave me two tablets. <laughs>
2: Uh, Very good. I I actually saw a cartoon many years ago about Moses coming down from the mountain with the two tablets of stone with this engraving on it and uh, his brother Aaron is standing at the bottom and he says, I I hate to interrupt but do you think it might go better if you call them the ten suggestions? (laughs) (laughs) instead of commands. So, Go ahead, um, So, So the actual point I was going to make, the actual <laughs> theological oh, a point, point there, yeah. rather than the yeah.
0: joke. Yeah. So I, I had two, right? So one was um, what you referred to just before is exactly what Nietzsche's criticism was, right? So so uh, Nietzsche's criticism of Christianity and Judaism and all the kind of Abrahamic religions, yeah. You know, uh, Nietzsche referred to them as, as slave yeah. morality, right? Because it was this idea that you posit what is evil and what is good is essentially what is not evil, uh, and Nietzsche kind of argued a kind of more master morality is one where you posit what is good and what is bad is just the opposite of what is good. The, which, you know, I, I think that makes sense in that framing from Nietzsche, right? But as a lot with uh, as a lot of Nietzsche, it's kind of premised on this idea of God is dead, mm-hmm. right? So, so, so when Nietzsche is kind of claiming that God no longer is in the marketplace, is dead, is not kind of relevant, present in the world anymore then that critique makes sense right where you mm-hmm. go well you're kind of stuck in this negative morality if you're constantly just you know listening to a being that is dead and isn't around anymore and they're just telling you what not to do and like maybe that's a bit of a problematic way of being um but if you accept that god is not dead then it makes perfect sense right so it's it's like the framing only works on this presumption of god having kind of yeah, you know, given up the ghost, so to speak. Um, mm. But yeah, I, so I'm interested in your in your nature critique.
1: Well, it, it, it's not so much a critique of nature as it is just a comment on the nature of commands, right? Like the the reason I think, and anyway, that in Christian thinking, all of those are, are negative, and it's kind of it's not defining the good, but defining the evil as something to be avoided, is because you you can't command love. And if love is like, if I tell you go and love that person, like you're going to do it grudgingly at best, right? Like it kind of, it's it's like when a a small child is told that they need to apologize for something and they're not really sorry, but mum said that you have to say sorry. And so you you go, I'm sorry. And and like, so if, if the fundamental good is love and that's kind of the the basis of the universe. Like no system of laws and rules and commands are ever going to actually get you to the point of loving others well. And, and you can't even define what it means to love someone else well because it's constantly changing and it's subjective. But what you can do is guard against unloving actions.
0: Well, I think that's exactly Nietzsche's point, right? Because Nietzsche would say that, you Know what one should do is if love is good, one should be motivated and driven and do that within themselves, they shouldn't need to be commanded, right? And, yeah. and this is the yeah, you know, I think I, I think you're it's you know, I, I think you're actually kind of making Nietzsche's argument for him there, where it's like you know, the, the whole point is that that yes, you know, you, you have those commandments and that negative framing because you must be commanded. And Nietzsche's argument is. Well, we Don't we, be the kind of person that needs to be commanded. Be the kind of person that that, oh, that, would that be identifies love and yeah. and just goes and does that.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that would be great if you could. I think is the issue. And uh, for me, if I may um, make a comment rather than facilitate a conversation, <laughs> um, I res- read the commands somewhat differently. And uh, as a Lutheran, very heretically from a Lutheran <laughs> point of view, because I see the commands as a promise. Every command is a promise. And so that which is commanded is eventually granted to us. Um, It's granted to us in Christ and then by union with him eventually. So we will stand before him eventually in the last day and goodness me, we won't have any other gods before him and goodness me, we won't envy one another, we won't covet another thing from another person. God will have fulfilled all things top full with himself so the commands are a a prophetic sign pointing to a promise rather than a command to keep us in slavery they're a promise of freedom not a set of
0: shackles to bind us and on that liberating note we will leave it here for this week Jacob
1: that's right that was part one of our conversation with Noel so there is more coming next week when we'll Start to talk about the
0: nature of evil and nothingness and, and see where we wind up. And you know what else has got more coming? What has more coming? Music from Kevin McLeod.
1: Certainly does. You can hear that at the beginning and the end of every episode of Christian and a Buddhist walk into a bar. You can also find us at christianbuddhistbar at gmail.com. And we'd love to hear your thoughts, feedback, questions, suggestions for the show.
0: And please send this podcast on to a friend and we will see you again next week.